Hello everyone and welcome to That Was Genius. This is a funny history podcast by Tom Berry and Sam Datter, exploring little-known stories and corners of the past. We'll get to the history shortly, but first, a couple of minutes of what we ominously call, quote, witty banter, highlights of our pre-recording chat, which usually ends up being mostly toilet humour. Hello, hello. That was a wonderful greeting. Uh, well, I always like to greet wonderfully. It was a little bit like having a pot that's been outside all winter and you turn it back over to plant something in and there's a little gnome. Ah, <laughs> uh, ha. He goes, hello. hello. <laughs> Can I help you? <laughs> oh, don't mind me. <laughs> Is it time to wake up now? I'm very late for work. I need a very big piss. <laughs> and an almighty poo. <laughs> and I'll make yes. Because I am an Italian gnome. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's suddenly went very Italian. Have you uh, never wondered what is happening inside a Mr. Whippy machine? <laughs> when you pull at the handle, it just squeezes my waist. <laughs> <laughs> if you want a Neapolitana, there are three different ones you squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> you squeeze the Irish one. <laughs> The Welsh one. What other colours are there? Chocolate, vanilla and strawberry. So you've got one who's eaten a lot of beetroot, one who's eaten a lot of calcium, <laughs> and one with a balanced diet. Uh-huh. Hey, and then there's a man that come and steal my hat and put my poo in the hat, and then I give it to a child. What is wrong with people? I've always thought I could hear something. I've always thought I could hear children's voices in the back of the ice cream van. (laughs) Please, sir, no more. A high-pitched sound of something trapped. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad that this is the way that the uh, first 15 seconds of our podcast is going to new listeners. How are you, anyway? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. I'm sitting before... I've gone for wine this week. I've got a massive glass of red wine. Oh, excellent. Very nice. I imagine that's what... Simon Sharma drinks when he makes poo jokes about history. <laughs> yes. She sits there in a gentleman's yeah, uh, Chesterfield armchair, just swilling a large glass of brandy or red wine. And... Wouldn't it be funny if whippies were produced by little gnomes trapped oh. in the machine? <laughs> what do you want? You, did you, how was your hangover after last week's recording? I felt dreadful. And if uh, anyone listens to, if any of our patrons are listening and heard last week's recording, you will be able to hear me slur increasingly as the episode goes on. <laughs> I was drinking whiskey on an empty stomach and made the mistake of putting the whiskey bottle next to me so I could top it up. Today I have one whiskey and the whiskey bottles are very far away from my headphones so I can't actually go and get any more. <laughs> like a goat on a leash. Exactly. You're only able to eat the grass around you. Yeah. Uh, if you want to hear that episode, by the way, and several other more professional recordings that we've done, then you can find it at <laughs> patreon.com slash genius. Let's do an actual podcast for the public, for the people. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the little history podcast in which Tom... Hello. ...and Sam, hello, discuss history stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme the week in advance, but everything else that happens is a surprise. And what is the theme this week, Tom? The theme is farming. Arr. Ooh, arr. Farming week this week. Arr. Arr. And how did you find this one, Tom? Uh, I found this one really easy. Oh, did you? Good. Yeah, because it was a topic that I've had on the back burner again for a couple of weeks. It was something one of my yeah. uh, one of my brothers pointed out to me. They said, "Oh, this is interesting." I read something about this person. You'll find this interesting, and it fits perfectly with the theme. There's no Amazing. bending of the topic this week. It's just going bong, bash, wish, wash, bosh, in. Fantastic. Happy I, I I have bent the topic this week, but I really struggled to find anything funny. My yeah. usual way. I've struggled a lot recently uh, to find funny things. I think Google's changed its search algorithm, which makes my quote-unquote historical research increasingly difficult. Uh, and then I was <laughs> listening back through an old episode, and I suddenly got reminded that I've made a completely empty promise to cover a topic many, many moons ago, and I'm finally, uh, finally fulfilling that promise today. So if you've been listening to us since the beginning... Waiting... Desperately. Wait, just, yes. Then uh, today is your day. This is your week. This is your moment. This is your perfect moment. Speaking of perfect moments, Tom, I know you're raring to go with some audience feedback. Oh, I am indeed. We have two pieces of audience feedback this week. I'll go for the shortest one first. Um, That's Robert, 
Thank you, Robert. The cartoons... This is from him. The cartoons suggestion came from my list of random concepts. Thanks, Mark. Huh. Always love the show. Sorry, sorry, Robert. That was our fault. It was your suggestion that we do the cartoons week. It wasn't Mark who, who just sent us a very, very long list, I think. Or was it Robert yes. who sent us the long list? I can't remember. Either way, I have the long list on my desktop. <laughs> And thank you for your suggestion of cartoons. It was excellent. It was very good. It was very good. And then we had Zeta, who says, Hi, guys. Your show is brilliant. Not only hilarious, but fantastically educational. We know. <laughs> thank uh, yes, you, Zeta. that is why we do it. <laughs> uh, I need to thank you so much, as I started listening every year ago, to help get through caring for my mum, who has dementia. And your podcast was the best mindful medicine I needed after a stressful day of dementia care. You just Aww. need to know how much your funny banter can really make a difference in someone's life. Thanks again, all the way from Canberra, Australia. Oh, it's an international Ooh. show, isn't it? Yes, we have listeners from all over the uh, Commonwealth-speaking world. Have you been increasingly less from other countries? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know what? Hilariously, we were um, in the top 100 comedy podcasts in India recently. I did spot <laughs> so, that. Yeah, that's a very strange yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, They've clearly been listening selectively to episodes. <laughs> yeah, God knows. That was the audience feedback. So thank you very much, Zita. That, that really is very kind for you to um, send us that message. It's lovely to know we're, we're making a difference. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. I think it's your turn to go first this week, isn't it, Tom? I'm fairly sure it is, Sam. Now, I've got a great yeah. topic for this week. I'm going to be talking about a German chemist called Fritz Haber. I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard about him before. Have you heard about this guy? I, I, Yeah, I know the name. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's a man who can be viewed as an evil bastard, or one of the greatest humanitarians of all time, or possibly the destroyer of Earth. Um, I've started quite deliberately Ooh. in a provocative and sensational way much like the author of the web article entitled The Tragedy of Fitzhaber, the monster who fed the world. <laughs> and the creator of the YouTube video, Fritz Haber, how an evil scientist saved the world. <laughs> I've created a monster because nobody wants to see Haber no more. They want Einstein. He's chopped liver. Um, the reason I've started <laughs> in this sensationalist way... My palms are sweaty, is... Bismarck spaghetti. <laughs> Ooh, Bismarck spaghetti. <laughs> trying to remember what Wagner wrote down you're, you're way past me now on your hip hop <laughs> lyrical knowledge Still I knew that happened. one line that was it <laughs> yeah so the reason I've started in this sensationalist way you only get two wars don't miss your chance to blow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I got that one, got Lieb that one. Lieben's round comes once in a lifetime go <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very good. That was, that was good, Sam. Well done. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I started in a sensationalist way, just so that I can get that bit out of the way quickly and move on to something harder but much more worthwhile, which is trying to explore and comprehend a nuanced and complex topic without the impulsive surges of prejudice and offence. That was a sentence which followed all of the emotional impact of me trying to flirt with a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Build it up with something big and hard, and then, oh, here's some history facts. <laughs> Whereas you should actually start it off with some history facts and then follow it up with something big and hard, Sam. Well, quite. <laughs> Fritz Haber's story is, is full of contradictions and ironies, and 25 minutes of retelling interspersed with bad jokes is really not going to do it full justice, I'm putting it out there. So, so <laughs> this is a bite-sized history of Fritz Haber. That's all right, don't worry, it'll get edited down to 15 minutes in the final one, it'll be fine. <laughs> this is a very bite-sized history of Fritz Haber then, <laughs> much like one of those tiny little Malteser teasers in an enormous box of mm. celebrations at your nan's house. <laughs> it will titillate your tongue, but if you want to stuff your guts and wake up next morning feeling like you're about to reenact that scene from Alien, but with a little chocolatey monster... Go and read some books about this guy. Oh, replacing the chestburster with a little like Malteser rabbit for Easter. Oh, now yeah. there's a treat. But a fearsome <laughs> one, one with little yes. sharp teeth, a little bit like the rabbit from Holy Grail. Like the lint bunny just bursts out. So you've been infected by lint's master chocolatiers. <laughs> yeah, just I pouring love that chocolate advert. down your throat. <laughs> I love that advert. The way they have a man with a white hat lifting yes. a spoon of chocolate. Going, mm, I'm not quite sure we have the consistency correct. Throw that batch out. <laughs> Bullshit! <laughs> it's a big factory, and in this factory, there's lots of machines which just go. Pff, 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 pff. That's how your chocolate's made. <laughs> it's also how your ice cream's made. Yeah. <laughs> Is it time to go home yet, sir? No! <laughs> no. 
Need more whippy. <laughs> Can't I do mint flavour today? No. No mint choc chippy. Not in a whippy. Nice. I love mint choc chip. Oh, yeah. If any of our listeners wish to uh, send us any ice cream in the near future. Yes. Mint chocolate chip is the one for me. Absolutely love it. <laughs> I've worked out recently, Sam, that you know the theory of depreciating returns? I think. Uh, it's like an with, economic uh, theory. Yes, 108 episodes into this podcast. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've worked out that that law, that rule, doesn't apply to crisps. Okay. Because I could just keep eating crisps until I turned into a crisp and I would still enjoy every individual crisp as much as the first. Uh, that's good and to I know. I imagine it's the same with mint chocolate chip. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Fritz Habel was born in 1868 in Breslau. Breslau is modern day. Now, this is an interesting one. How do you reckon you pronounce the Polish that's written W-R-O-C-L-A-W? Uh, Warsaw, isn't it? I don't think that is Warsaw. Is that Warsaw? No, it's not Warsaw. I'm fairly sure it's not Warsaw. Um, but you'd, you'd, an English speaker would say Rockla, Rocklaw, but it's actually pronounced Rotswaf. Oh. Rotswaf. Anyway, so Breslau oh, well, Bres- is modern-day Wrocław in Poland. I'm glad I researched that and found out how to pronounce it. That could have been very embarrassing with all our Polish uh, yeah. listeners. Yeah, I mean, I had, Polish is a language which rivals... Welsh. Irish. <laughs> Rivals Irish for a lack of phonetic spelling. <laughs> <laughs> Irish names are good, aren't they? You know, Siobhan with a silent B. <laughs> <laughs> Just take it away. Just move that B. Anyway, way back then it was part of Prussia. So Haber was a German on pole. And there is so much to say about this man that I'll skip through his early life and focus on the juicy parts of his life. It is worth noting, however, that his stepmother was called Hedwig Hamburger which sounds like a, a very feathery <laughs> delicacy that you might buy at the food market in Wuhan. <laughs> yeah. That's what they had to do after the roadkill incident. Yeah, exactly. Nothing wasted. <laughs> yeah. Where the, where the full Cortina bashed him. You're having a barbecue, Harry. <laughs> We've got a raccoon here as well. And the phoenix. <laughs> and that hippogriff roast up a treat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Died of natural causes, but the meat's still good. <laughs> well, now that he's been decapitated, I don't suppose there's anything better to do with him, really. There's what I'd want. Nope. <laughs> Make kebabs out of him. Uh, yeah, so to summarise, Haber was a talented scientist and pursued a career in academia. In 1909, Haber and a colleague called Robert Lorosignol, who was actually a British chemist who just happened to have a French name, demonstrated that it was possible... <laughs> and accent. Yeah, <laughs> demonstrated that it was possible to produce ammonia from the nitrogen in the air. And uh, here's a little yeah. quiz question for you, Sam, if you remember your chemistry classes from school. What percentage oh, of air is nitrogen? I think it's actually pretty high, isn't it? I'm going to say it it's was, about 20%. Is it 20%? 20%. Have we got lower or higher for many of the audience members? Lower, lower, higher, higher. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since we mentioned Bruce Forsyth in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, for two episodes. Uh, it's actually 78% nitrogen. Oh, yeah. of course it is. Sorry, I, it's 20% it oxygen, I'm sure isn't it? it's 78. Oh, for some reason, I had the figure 79, but I knew it was wrong. <laughs> no, it's about 20, is, it, is it about 20% oxygen? 20% Queen Victoria's um, atoms. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them go around by the end. No, 20% fart. It's, it's 20% fart, 78% nitrogen, and that 2% oxygen, which um, keeps us alive. 21% oxygen. I was confusing oxygen and nitrogen. Yeah, don't ever do that when you're what trying to... Yeah survive underground no no well no. <laughs> i won't explain how it's possible to produce ammonia from nitrogen because this isn't a chemistry podcast no but it was a really big deal let me explain why now at the turn of the 20th century the world population was booming it sat at 1.6 billion people a hundred years earlier at the start of the 19th century there were 1 billion people on the planet that's 600 million people in 100 years Oof. Thanks, scientific revolution, huh. which emerged at the Renaissance huh. and heavily influenced hmm. the Enlightenment. Huh. Thanks. At the birth of Christ... Fuck's sake. Fuck's sake. At the birth of Christ, incidentally, there were a mere 200 million people on the planet. That's still quite a lot, isn't it? That's more than you'd think. It would be quite a lot if you all tried to fit in a mini. Y- y- yes. <laughs> or that it would be quite a lot if there were only three cubicles. 
and you all needed a poo at the same time. The yes, um, that would be quite a lot. What this meant for society was that it was becoming increasingly difficult to feed everyone. Traditional farming method involves fertilisation using organic material, you know, cow shit, guano, compost. Good old guano. Yeah, guano. Wars, wars fought over guano. Yeah. Although... Uh, Batshit. Bat Batshit, yeah, exactly. Uh, collected off the ground, isn't it? So it sort of collects off the ground and you go and pick it up. And, uh, yeah, and or in caves or entire islands made out of the stuff. Yeah, and you spread it on your courgettes. Great stuff. Yes, ooh, lovely. Adds a lovely piquant. <laughs> Although this stuff is great, it wasn't good enough for a rapidly growing world population. By producing ammonia from the air, the key part of this compound here being the nitrogen, because that's the fertiliser, Haber and Rosignol revolutionised world farming. Farming? World, f- <laughs> world farming. Which is quite near Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, Farmingham. I used to know a chap called Farmingham, Fred Farmingham. A Farmingdale. Yes, Fred Farmingham and Farmingham of Farmingdale. He used to fart the flute. He did. Basically. <laughs> and, and, and fuck the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> fart the flute and fuck the farmer. And that's one of the Dr. Seuss books which has been um, blacklisted. <laughs> yes. And is no longer published. <laughs> In 1910, Haber joined up with another chap called Carl Bosch, who I imagine said Bosch, much like a television chef whenever he demonstrated experiments to students. Right, (laughs) so we take the Bunsen burner over here, switch it on, Bosch. Then we can get a can of Lynx Africa, Axe if you're not British, Irish, Australian or a New Zealander, a Bosch flamethrower. Watch as I burn this dead frog. We're going to be pulling it apart later in biology. Bosch, toasted toad. (laughs) Uh, yes, uh, he had a short-lived wrestling career as well. Yeah. In which his name was Bish Bash. Carl, Carl Bish Bash. Bash Bosh. <laughs> with, his, <laughs> with his special move. The, yeah. the nitrogen. The nitrogen nailer. <laughs> Unfortunately, his kitchen, his uh, line of kitchen cleaning products never really took off. Uh, for, for reasons no one can really understand, uh, Silic Carl never, <laughs> never, never, never took off. <laughs> Carl, and the dirt is gone. <laughs> uh, um, so Haber and Bosch created the imaginatively named Haber-Bosch method, and the rest is history. It's a process... It's a, gr- a great prog rock band, incidentally. <laughs> the Haber-Bosch method, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's a process that supports as much as half of all human life on the planet today. Wow. So somewhere in the region of four billion people. I read somewhere else... Yes, I- very big statistic. Yeah. I read somewhere else that it's been estimated that 20% of humans on the planet today owe their lives to him. Wow. Ooh. That's quite a legacy. Retire now, Haber, and become the greatest scientist to have ever lived, whose work has saved billions of people from suffering famine and starvation. Or alternatively, if you believe that population is population, a man whose work started mm. us on the inevitable journey towards destroying the planet and ourselves. Anyway... You pay, you pay your money, you take your choice. <laughs> anyway, overpopulation problems aside, Haber could have retired a hero. He was later awarded a Nobel Prize for his work. Interestingly, this was in 1918, after a much more controversial period in his life. Let's discuss this bit. Along comes World War I. The British had access to saltpeter. I think that's pronounced saltpeter, saltpetra. Basically sodium nitrate from mines in Chile. Saltpeter is, uh, incidentally, is just a... A very bitter man. Or a nice... It sounds like it just could be salty. a nice He's just a salty man. He's just... Um, <laughs> it's constantly throwing little sarcastic comments your way. Or, or just, a, uh, just a sailor. Fisherman. Yes. Make one of me salt, yeah. Peter. I've been out sea now for three years. I haven't washed once. <laughs> Meet my friend Sandy Simon. <laughs> there is Sandy Simon and Barnacle Barry. And my other friend who hasn't washed for three years, Smeggy Sam. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's a nickname that I recall. <laughs> Back at university, I seem to remember that nickname, Sam. I didn't realise you knew. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Salty Peter, also known as sodium nitrate, um, was a vital ingredient in the production of explosives, and I think it was also used as a fertiliser as well. The Germans did not have access to this stuff. However, the ammonium produced by the Haber-Bosch method could be used to produce nitric acid, and then the nitrates required to make explosives. Ah. Yes. So that stuff that has given billions of people the opportunity to live without suffering, oh yeah, also allows us to kill each other. <laughs> yes. Now Haber was well up for the First World War. 
He became head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical Chemistry in Berlin in 1911, and at the outbreak of war was full of patriotic fervour. He was simmering with it. He immediately began supporting the war effort and quickly became head of the chemistry section in the Ministry of War. Oh dear, we can see where this is going. Yes, he was integral to the German army's development of chemical warfare, and he personally oversaw the gas attack at the Second Battle of Ypres on April the 22nd. Oh. 168 tonnes of chlorine gas from around 6,000 canisters was released when the wind was favourable. Bad idea to release it when the wind isn't favourable. Yes. Schnell, schnell! That was, a genuine, that was a genuine issue at the beginning of gas attacks in World War One. We need to manufacture more fans. <laughs> the whole of the German manufacturing industry will be diverted to produce fans. <laughs> or Brussels sprouts. Presents your anuses to the enemy, boys. On the count of three, I would like to pop. If the chlorine gas doesn't get some, then... So the sauerkraut will. Yes. <laughs> 70,000 Allied troops died during the Battle of um, Ypres. So, the Second Battle of Ypres. Somewhere in the region of thousands died from chemical asphyxiation. So not a massive number, to be honest. Chemical warfare was prohibited in the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907. Germany was actually a signatory of, of those. It's actually fascinating now how many Nobel laureates were involved in chemical war- warfare during the First World War on both sides. There were quite a lot. A surprising number. Anyway, here's a contemporary description of the effects of chlorine gas. Quote, Gas. Gas. That was because there was a little burp in the back of my mouth. And it made me sound... Jumping Jack Flash, like it's a gas, gas, gas. (laughs) It produces a flooding of the lungs. It is an equivalent death to drowning only on dry land. The effects are these. A splitting headache and terrific thirst. To drink water is instant death. A knife edge of pain in the lungs and the coughing up of a greenish froth off the stomach and the lungs, ending finally in insensibility and death the colour of the skin from white turns a greenish black and yellow the tongue protrudes and the eyes assume a glassy stare it is a fiendish death to die not too dissimilar I feel Sam to sharing a bedroom with you after you've eaten too much chorizo (laughs) yes or you after too much (laughs) braised cabbage (laughs) that's true this is a a fascinating tidbit into our lives that non-patrons will have missed last week (laughs) This is what you get for your money, folks. You get cauliflower anecdotes. And (laughs) endless, and I mean endless anecdotes from Sam about times he's farted. (laughs) Memorable farting moments (laughs) from the annals of Sam. Sorry, let me (laughs) reread that. Yes, here we go. Anyway, the second battle of Ypres was a success for the Germans, and Haber returned home to Berlin, where a party was held in his honour. Hours after this party ended, his wife, Clara, wandered into the garden and shot herself dead with Haber's army pistol. Oh, wow. Yeah. She was a very talented chemist herself um, who had sacrificed her career for family. She had very publicly criticised her husband's involvement in developing chemical warfare. Um, Haber's involvement in chemical warfare was controversial even at the time, and his wife was not the only critic. There were actually many people in the armed forces who thought it was unchivalrous. Haber Mm. argued that, quote... The disapproval that the knight had for the man with the firearm is repeated in the soldier who shoots with steel bullets towards the man who confronts him with chemical weapons. The gas weapons are not at all more cruel than the flying iron pieces. On the contrary, the fraction of fatal gas disease is comparatively smaller. The mutilations are missing. Um, and to be honest, you can see his point, you know. You, you can you can, as long as you just very, very much tunnel vision the idea of a gas attack. If I, I'm, I'm a very chivalrous individual, Sam, and to be perfectly honest, I, at the Hague Convention, would have pitched in for conquers. That's where I would have been pitching it. I would say only death... In fact, not even death. I just think we should all play conquers. So we should have a battlefield where everyone is smashing out the conquers. And if you lose, you walk back, you shake hands, you walk back, you say, sorry, I'm defeated. And then whoever's got the most men left... They win. That would be a better way of doing it. It would, wouldn't it? In some uh, tribal cultures, they do have dance-offs rather than battles. Do they? Yeah. Pelvic thrust. Take that bitch, pelvic thrust. Interestingly, Haber also oversaw the development of gas masks, which made chemical warfare ineffective. What the right hand giveth, the left hand taketh away, doesn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. That's like <laughs> it's like creating the disease and then creating the creating the cure, isn't now, it? What's the name of that syndrome? Um, certain you know nurses know. and doctors have that, don't they? Where they deliberately make people sick so they can make it better again. Uh, firefighters as well will deliberately start fires, right. won't they? We're going yes. to start um, fire. And then we'll park round the corner with the fire engine ready. We're going to start a fire. We're going <laughs> to give you a faulty pacemaker. Uh, hero syndrome. Oh, is it just called hero syndrome? It's not got a better name. It's, called, it's just called hero syndrome. Yes, yeah, so between wars, Haber devoted much time to researching whether gold could be filtered out of seawater hoping that this would help Germany with its colossal war reparations. He also worked hard to rebuild relations with sort of international scientific establishments. Um, and he also served on the League of Nations Committee on Chemical Warfare. <laughs> Which he was in favour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think there should be more of it. <laughs> more, more, more. And we should ban <laughs> gas masks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um he also actually did live in fear of being tried as a war criminal. But, uh, it, I mean, the, the, the big criticism here, I think probably the, the, the one, number one on the list, is the fact that it was actually um, prohibited by the, the Hague Conventions, um, which Germany had signed up to. So they were actually breaking conventions. But then I've always thought that's a funny thing, Sam, isn't it? Always fair in love and war, isn't it? It's just, I've always found it, is. it odd. There's a lot of weapons today which, like, for example, like, white phosphorus is still used today. It's an absolutely horrendous, horrendous chemical, which does unspeakably awful things to people if it touches them. Uh, but it's perfectly legal to use as long as you're using it for quote-unquote illuminating things rather than blowing things up. So if you shoot a bunch of white phosphorus into, into enemy soldiers or a crowd to light them up, that's perfectly acceptable. If you're doing it to kill them, that's bad. Mm. Either way, they're dying. One's legal, though. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Anyway... In the 1930s, Haber found himself back on the right side of history. He didn't like the Nazis very much, and the Nazis didn't like him very much, because he was actually a Jew. He'd converted to Christianity much earlier in his life, because he felt that his Jewish background was a burden due to the prejudices. Nonetheless, the Nazis didn't like him, and he eventually resigned from his position, fled Germany, and travelled around Europe, eventually dying in 1934 in Switzerland. Shortly before his death, he had been invited to live and study in Britain, and he did spend a few months in Britain. I think. Around this time, Ernest Rutherford, the famous Kiwi scientist, refused to shake Haber's hand. Incidentally, Rutherford studied in Christchurch, New Zealand, where I lived for nine years. For our loyal listeners, mm. they'll know that. And uh, Rutherford's Den is a, a popular tourist attraction that we stupidly never visited. Oh. Yeah, it's in some bushes. What's in, what's in his oh, den? It's, in, it's <laughs> just in some bushes. At the back. It's just some crumpled up porn magazines. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's at the back of a wreck. A half-finished bottle of vodka. Just beside a railway. It's got a big wooden sign outside saying no girls allowed. <laughs> Busy splitting squirrels. So he's first started by splitting squirrels, then, then he worked his way down to a snail, then a ladybird, and then by the time he was an adult, he progressed to the atom. There you have it. Yeah. Um, in a final twist, in the 1920s, Haber's laboratories developed a gas called Zyklon B as part of research into pesticides. I don't know whether you've heard of Zyklon B. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, many of our listeners may recognise that because it's the gas that the Nazis ended up using in gas chambers during the Holocaust. I can't seem to say gas. I, I, I'm very polar. Yes. I either, either say it very posh or very common. Gas <laughs> or gold. Anyway. Yes. Yes. There you go. In um in an interesting twist, by the way, and this is a second fun fact of the day, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin needed covering in an anti-graffiti paint to stop anti-Semitic graffiti from being uh from being scrawled on it. And the only company that made a suitable product was the same company that manufactured Cyclone B in the first place. Oh really? Wow. You got you got some really scubby people on the planet, haven't you? That they're uh, spray painting anti-Semitic <laughs> comments over a Holocaust Memorial. Wow. Yes. <laughs> really? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so some of Haber's um, extended family, some of his more distant relatives, were actually gassed by the Nazis. Anyway, of course, this doesn't say anything about the character of Haber in the same way that Rutherford's splitting of the atom does not make him responsible for the atomic bomb. Um, unfortunately, for cutting-edge scientists, humans always seem to find a way to use new technologies um, and discoveries to kill people. Yes. Let's finish with... A- yeah, it's like Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project and um, Werner, Werner von Braun. And the, sh- and the Razor V2 blades. rockets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's a few quotes to finish us off. Encyclopedia Britannica, I have beside me on the right. Of course. Quote, 
Haber was strongly imbued with the conviction that the basic purpose of science was the betterment of mankind. So uh, quite a positive little... By the killing of Brits. (laughs) Yes. Um, Einstein, who knew Haber personally, concluded, Haber's life was a tragedy of the German Jew, a tragedy of unrequited love. And I don't really know what that means, but I thought I'd put it in at the end because Einstein was well clever, wasn't he? He was uh, a smarty pants. And so that that concludes it, really. So this is Haber, um, Fritz Haber, who someone who you could easily paint as a horrible monster, but it was just a complex character. And actually, had he not been involved in gas warfare during the First World War, he'd be seen... Some revolutions in fertiliser would be seen as something heroic. Well, even if you, if you look at his batting average, he's still pretty damn good. He saved more, a lot more lives than most sport, pretty much any other person who's ever lived. Certainly more than he killed. Absolutely. But he did still kill some, so it depends whether you want to play it as a numbers game. <laughs> Yeah, so it's an interesting one. A complex character. That's how we'll end it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, a, char- a character who found himself in a complex situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It's, it must be difficult. Absolutely, it must be difficult. There were, there were a lot of people that were involved in the Second World War. There's also very much an element of the winner's right history here. There is, yeah. Had he been on the right there side is. of history, had the Germans won the First World War, he would most definitely be a hero. Duty makes people do questionable things, like... I don't know if I would have signed up to work on the Manhattan Project to make the atomic bomb. I don't know if I could have done that, knowing that how it was going to be used, with hindsight at least. But anyway, yeah, that's, it, a non, that's an unfun moral no, quandary. No, no, there's a lot of moral quandaries as well, and that's, um, that's the wonderful thing about complexity. Oh, excellent, Tom. Excellent. Well, not excellent, questionable. And I know you've had um, a hard day today getting various things done, so that's taken up 48 minutes worth of this recording, so... Sweet. Take him off the team there, Sam. <laughs> Marvellous. Well, thank you, Tom. That's very generous of you. <laughs> well, Tom, I alluded at the beginning to today being the fulfilment of a promise made probably two years ago now, if not slightly, well, more than two years ago now. Episode nine, in fact. Wow. Our episode on food, two false legs and one ruined bakery. Possibly still one of the funniest episodes we've ever done. I was about done. to say, why were you listening to that episode? And then I remembered which episode it was. And I said, you don't need no reason. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I was listening to this is because I remembered that I'd made a vague promise to talk about something that was vaguely farming related. I was really struggling to find anything else funny. <laughs> so I went back and checked. And yes, I did make that promise. So today, Tom, I'm going to be talking about, as mentioned briefly in episode nine, the Pig War of 1859. I almost went down the pig oh, yes. route. That was the first thing I researched was pigs. I just Googled pigs. Did Tell you? me, Google, about pigs. Because <laughs> pigs are funny, aren't they? They're great. Yes, very, very intelligent and very delicious. What did I Google? I Googled great farming scandals, which I struggled to make funny. There's the great Jerusalem artichoke scandal of 1980, uh, which is actually not that interesting, <laughs> in which lots of US farmers lost money. Yeah. I was considering today... Doing the history of farming the pineapple. Oh, the history of farming the pineapple. <laughs> yes, in the, in the UK. Because mm. there's some quite funny stories and some quite funny obsessions about it, but I decided that this was better. Okay. Maybe I'll do that in some future episode. So despite almost weekly emails, Tom, coming in from listeners, none of which mentioned the promised pig war, I've never gone round to doing it until today. So without further ado, let's finally explore one of the most ridiculous wars ever, well, not fought. The 1859 Pig War, by the way, Tom, is not the only Pig War in history. Oh, no, no, no. In fact, there have been three. Uh, the first was the Saukrieg, or Pig War, of 1555 to 1558. Wow, that one went on the, for three uh, years. In three years, in which the Bishop of Meissen, John IX, was driven from Saxony in Germany by the family of his uh, predecessor, Nicholas II, in a dispute over inheritances. Uh, Nicholas's family uh, burned a lot of villages and set 700 of the bishop's pigs free, who ate all the crops and starved out the area, forcing the bishop to flee. Not very funny. Oh, it would be, though, wouldn't there it? Was it would all... be a very difficult situation if you were a peasant in the area, because pigs I, Yeah, not, not funny, though. Oh, but pigs are good. You'd be like, oh, look, there's some pigs. Look, look there are pigs out the window. There's 700 of them running oh, over a hill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, but they've eaten all our crops. That's not good. But they are pigs. Pigs are good. But yeah, you know, the, the fifth film in the series, Babe Assaults the City. <laughs> 
And of course, the follow on from that in which a load of helicopter born pig soldiers uh, get pinned down by a group of rebels holding out in the city, which, of course, is um, Black Pork Down. Nice. I see what we did there. Oh, okay. Right, where are we going with this then? <laughs> there's no, there's nothing. That was not, a, that was not a planned oh, joke. That was. <laughs> there is nothing further coming. Um, I'm sure if we gave ourselves enough time. Yes, but let's not. Uh, there was also the Pig War of 1906 to 1908, Tom, which was a trade war between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Kingdom of Serbia, in which Serbian pork was banned from the empire. As you'd expect, Tom, that has all the comic opportunity of filing your taxes. <laughs> About as interesting as it sounds. And then sat in the middle, Tom, between the two, like ham in a sandwich or a sausage and a hot dog, is the Pig War of 1859. And this Pig War was a Cold War fought between the US and the UK. Cold pork. Mm. Which started with one hungry porker and ended up in a major armed border dispute. (laughs) So... To set the scene, Tom, the Oregon Treaty of June 15th, 1846, resolved a very long... (laughs) <laughs> Christ <laughs> mm, origami <laughs> yeah paper pig <laughs> so the Oregon Treaty of June the 15th 1846 resolved a long running boundary dispute over where the British Empire and what would become Canada ended and the US began around the Pacific Ocean on the west coast Generally, the line was fairly straight. If you look at it on a map, it still is. But there was a bit of a wiggle several miles north of Seattle and south of Vancouver. Uh, Incidentally, the two are only about 60 miles apart, where the coast curves and there are lots of bays and inlets and islands. The Treaty of Oregon drew a line. Quote, along the 49th parallel of north latitude to the middle of the channel which separates the continent from Vancouver Island, and thence southerly through the middle of said channel, and of the Strait of Juan de Fuca (laughs) (laughs) to the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) So the key bit of that slightly confusing text, apart from Juan de Fuca... (laughs) Which is John the Fucker. Or indeed Wanda Fucker. The patron saint of bumbling. (laughs) (laughs) You've dropped a fucking myrrh again. We've already been back to the east three times (laughs) because you've dropped the myrrh. And the cross of Christ was in one piece before you got your fucking hands on it. <laughs> now look at it. What are we going to do with all these splinters? Got enough to send to every bloody church in Europe. <laughs> the, the key slightly confusing bit of that text is the line... Well, is uh, to summarise, through the middle of the channel which separates the continent from Vancouver Island. Which isn't very helpful because there's quite a large group of islands in the middle of that channel. The San Juan Islands which have a channel to the left of them and a channel to the right of them. And here they are, Tom, stuck Stuck in the middle middle, with you. Uh, And there's a very narrow channel between them, which isn't big enough to get a ship through. The US, therefore, thought that the islands were all theirs, and Britain thought that the islands were all theirs. And the reason they cared was because they had a very high strategic value for defending the two cities, Seattle and Vancouver. So both countries sent settlers and traders to the island who to, to try and bolster their claims on it, who generally lived peacefully side by side, whilst the politicians tried to sort out the issue responsibly. And this carried on until 13 years to the day after the treaty was signed. On June the 15th, 1859, an American farmer called Lyman Cutler... Lyman Cutler? Lyman Cutler uh, sounds like a bodybuilder. Uh, oh, he does, doesn't Cutler. he? <laughs> I can barely move. Lightweight baby. <laughs> Do you even lift? <laughs> it feels like I'm coming. If, every time I settle a town, it makes me feel like I'm coming. <laughs> yeah. Every time I fulfill a manifest destiny. Oh. <laughs> Pumping iron reference for anyone who's completely lost. Yes. <laughs> Called Lyman Cumbucket. <laughs> uh... Had, had settled on San Juan Island, and he found a, a giant pig in his garden eating his potatoes. <laughs> now, this had happened several times before, and Lyman, sick of chasing the pig off, shot it. <laughs> it turned out that the pig was owned by a guy called Charles Griffin, an Irish settler employed by Britain's Hudson Bay Trading Company. Imagine, Tom, the Irish settler didn't own the potato farm. What kind of crazy mixed-up world was this? <laughs> Now, Cutler, realising that he'd shot his friend and neighbour's prized sow, offered $10, or about $300 today, by way of apology and to make amends, but Griffin was furious and demanded ten times that amount. 
Cutler argued he should not have to pay for the pig because it had been trespassing on his land. Griffin said that Cutler was responsible for keeping his own land fenced off. Legend has it that when the two were brought together by authorities to try and mediate the situation, Cutler shouted that the pig, quote, was eating my potatoes, and Griffin replied, it's up to you to keep your potatoes out of my pig. (laughs) In an Irish accent, please. (laughs) That pig's eating my potatoes. Ah, it's up to you to keep your potatoes out of my pig. <laughs> That's a Northern Irish accent as well. Okay. Yes. I like it. You gave a little regional kick. And keep the prods out of dairy. There <laughs> will be no surrender. <laughs> <laughs> I am making a legitimate request. Free <laughs> the fence off your land. So the British unsurprisingly sided with their guy. So when they threatened to arrest Cutler for refusing to properly compensate Griffin, the American settlers banded together and called for military protection from the US, uh, presumably sealing the deal by claiming they had oil, they had democratically elected a socialist leader, or indeed they wanted to own their own fruit. (laughs) You know, Tom, a classic tick list of ways to get yourself, quote, protected by the US. Uh, America, enthralled by the idea of oil, socialism and fruit, uh, responded by dispatching 66 American troops of the 9th Infantry Regiment under Captain George Pickett to San Juan, with orders to prevent any British forces from landing. The British, in response, sent three warships under the command of Captain Geoffrey Hornby to the area. Geoffrey Hornby, of course, uh, was in fact just a small train. (laughs) Oh Choo-choo! I'm Captain Hornby! <laughs> I brought the gravy! <laughs> the gravy tray. And the wedding! <laughs> and the of thought! <laughs> and anything you can insert the word train into. <laughs> uh, so Pickett, in a particularly moronic move, set his camp up opposite the Hudson Bay Company's sheep farm, which Griffin ran. That was his job on the island. Partly, this was moronic because it was very clearly a move designed to inflame tensions and antagonise the British. So you let your pigs run free and you're going to be tasting Freedom USA style uh, with guns and you being dead. Uh, But more importantly, this was moronic because the US troops were within plain sight and easy cannon range of the British fleet. (laughs) Pickett had to have this pointed out to him by one of his subordinates. Highly qualified man. (laughs) And uh, at which point he had to move and rebuild his camp on high ground several miles inland, all whilst the British watched on slightly amused. Uh, Incidentally, Tom, this American camp still exists and is one of the best preserved historic US camps in the country. So there you go. Meanwhile, on the other end of the island, the British had landed several platoons of marines without Pickett being able to do anything about it, or indeed noticing, because he was busy moving his camp away from the British guns. As the two armies stood off, their respective authorities began moving more and more and more troops into the area. Bearing in mind, Tom, that this was an island which had a population of roughly 200 at the time. And within two months, so by August, the numbers had swelled to 461 Americans armed with 14 cannons, whilst the British now had five warships with 70 guns and 2,100 men. God bless. God bless. God bless the British Empire. They're coming with force. This is starting to sound like um, a move in a game of risk. Isn't it? A bit like, yeah, taking Kamkatcha. Piling, piling all your forces into one. Yeah, so the Americans originally had 520 men uh, and no cannons, but then they swapped them for, <laughs> yeah. for four cannons. So both sides have been ordered by their commanders to defend themselves, but not to fire the first shot, because no one wanted to be seen to have started a war over a fucking pig. Who and so a pig? In response... <laughs> this is a detail no, Tom, you missed fucking, no no it was a fucking pig it was, it was the island's mm. fucking pig it's the most effective form of contraception Tom. I like potatoes can I fuck them <laughs> mm. I like your turnips right in the can eyes fuck em? right in the eyes <laughs> I'm going to look at you while I do it I'm going to look right in your eyes while I fuck your turnip <laughs> I'm going to stick this carrot right mm. up my ass is that a bucket <laughs> I like fucking buckets. Can I fuck your bucket? (laughs) (laughs) Be a shame if you left some cheese out. (laughs) I fucked the cheese as well. (laughs) Is that a warning can? I like fucking warning cans. (laughs) Christ. I'll fuck the warning can real good. (laughs) You okay? (laughs) How large is his glass of wine? 
This little piggy fucked at the market. <laughs> this little piggy fucked at home. This little piggy fucked some roast beef. <laughs> this little piggy fucked none. And this little piggy fucked everybody all the way home. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, indeed. So, yes, no one wanted to be seen to have started the war over a... Sexually promiscuous pig. <laughs> <laughs> Over a flipping pig. Is that your watering can? I'm going to rotate it. <laughs> you see this turnip? It's going to grow if I turn it upside down. <laughs> That's a nice daughter you got there. Shame if she's a headstand. <laughs> see that bird pal? Ain't going to work if I turn it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> So no one wanted to start a war over a pig. As <laughs> did you get fucked by a pig? <laughs> have you in the mouth? Have you suddenly found yourself upside down? <laughs> <laughs> so in order to try and provoke each other and not be the one to fire the first shot, every day for two months, several groups of men from either side were ordered to go to the enemy camp and shout insults at them in the hope of getting shot at. <laughs> Fortunately, both knew exactly what the other was planning and managed to keep their calm in the face of being called alternately an obese group of chino short-wearing <laughs> rednecks with a BMI higher than their IQ <laughs> and or a group of tea-swilling, bad-toothed, inbred-drunk, gammon-faced imperialists. <laughs> you there, big nose. <laughs> I say, it smells an awful lot like shit on this side of the island, doesn't it? <laughs> Your mama's so fat. <laughs> when she wears the yellow anorak, people shout taxi. <laughs> <laughs> I say, your mother's so fat, she's slightly below the average weight for your area. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes a bit like terrible cheese and bad burgers over here. <laughs> So bear in mind that all of this was happening on a local <laughs> level because news travelled very slowly in the 1850s. The British troops were sent by their local military leadership under the governor of the colony of Vancouver Island, a guy called James Douglas, whilst the US troops were being commanded by Brigadier General William S. Harney. From the, uh, that's Harney, not Horney. <laughs> <laughs> I want a fucking pig. Hi, <laughs> William S. Harney. What's that? Okay, I'll fuck it. Anything else you got around here? Yes. Or got any barrels? I like fucking barrels. Um. Yes, I'm Brigadier General William S. Harney, or Willie Harney, <laughs> to my friends. <laughs> Before we have breakfast, I like to have a quick wank. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> you see, I just struggle to control my urges. It's not just my troops who stand to attention. <laughs> So, yeah, yes, <laughs> so the US troops were, were sent from Oregon. Neither Washington or London really knew what was happening for some weeks and had an absolute fucking shit fit when they found out that there was a very real risk of a very real war over a potato farm. As soon as they could, envoys were sent from both nations to negotiate a peace and they, they arrived in late August and things started to get back to normal. Both armies were given joint military control of the island with a token presence not to exceed 100 men. And having spent two months insulting each other, the US and British troops actually became best friends, having international quote-unquote sporting competitions on a regular basis and taking the day off for each other's national holidays to come round to their camps for a party. In fact, the main danger during this period is remembered as being the fact that the two armies were continuously absolutely hammered in what amounted to a 12-year-long bender. I want to be stationed there if I were in the army. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to absolutely. be in Absolutely. What a treat. <laughs> no. Far too far too many snakes I don't want to and be in malaria. The no. No. Far too much death. I want a nice jolly somewhere near Seattle. <laughs> so, as time moved on, Vancouver became part of British Columbia and then the new Dominion of Canada in 1871, at which point it was decided that the situation should probably be sorted out. And of all people, Tom, the Germans were brought in to mediate. <laughs> well, they know their pork. <laughs> they, do, they do know their pork. <laughs> and so Germany gave the islands to the USA. 
The period is actually pretty fondly remembered on the island as the time when the two farmers went to war, two nations very nearly went to war, and a 12-year-old piss-up ensued. All for only one casualty, the one dead pig at the beginning. In fact, in recognition of the war and the solidarity and the friendship that formed between the US and the British troops, park rangers to this day still raise and lower the Union Jack on the site of the British camp to commemorate this war that never was. And I believe, Tom, it is the only place in the US where the Union Jack is still raised on a regular basis. And it's done by US oh, forces. Irritatingly patriotic expats. <laughs> yeah, who own the British shop. <laughs> Selling Seven bad lager. from Marmite, Jarrah Marmite. Yeah, Seven absolutely. Yeah. From Jarrah Marmite. <laughs> That's my story, Tom. That's my story. That's wonderful, Sam. Thank you very much. Just, my pleasure. Just, just solely for the fucking pig. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Do you know the fucking pig? The fucking pig. The fucking. Pig. He's the pig that's fucking your your deck chair. That's a side. Show, that's a side show at, at a fairground, isn't it? A Victorian fairground. Roll up, roll up, and see the fucking pig. Watch him as he fucks anything you give yes. him. Oh, there we go. Should we think of a topic for next week? <laughs> Bearing in mind it's a patron episode, so we have to come up with our own idea. Oh, patron episode. Um, I did... 1988. 1988? Yeah. Why not? Okay. Why? Because my Encyclopedia Britannica, I have the 1988 annual, and I was staring at it at the time. So I can sift through my 1988 Encyclopedia Britannica annual and find something hopefully funny. Okay. Right. Every bone in my body is telling me this is a terrible idea, but 1988 it is. Next week we're going to party like it's 1988. Yes, so if you want to hear that episode on 1988, then you can join the Order of the Bath. We have an exclusive episode every other week. You also get songs, medals and doodles just for the price of a coffee every month. And you'll find us at patreon.com slash thatwasgenius. We should also think of a public episode for two weeks' time. Do we have any audience suggestions oh, we left? we have lots. We have slippery situations, funniest badassery, unexpected journeys, mythical creatures that turned out to be real, medical procedures, indigenous people, South America, non-European explorers, genocides, leaders' lives after being exiled, farmers... Oh, we've done that one. Cross that one off. Yep. Bulls and bears, weird lives of horror writers, origins of religions... Okay, I think let's either do slippery situations, slippery situations, or medical procedure, or medical procedures. Slippery situations, it is. Slippery situations for the next public episode in two weeks' time. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk at you, as always. Uh, do follow us on Facebook. You can either follow the page where we don't really write anything, That Was Genius, a funny history podcast, or the group where occasionally people put memes. Ooh, That Was Genius, a funny history podcast group. You can also email us, thatwasgeniuscast at gmail.com with feedback, suggestions, whatever you like. And there's a form on our website, thatwasgeniuspodcast.com, which uh, has a few other bits on it as well, including an amusing medieval picture of a man shoving his finger up his bottom <laughs> speaking of which i'm going to let you go tom <laughs> <laughs> nice. i know you've got things to do i've got things to shove so, up my uh, bottom yep indeed so i will say goodbye from me and tom will say goodbye from me have a lovely week everyone speak to you soon bye-bye bye-bye <laughs>